Good afternoon. Welcome to this week's Talent and Growth uh, webinar. Thank you very much for joining us. If you are locking on live today, appreciate you tuning in to us rather than getting some sunshine. And uh, if you are catching up on the podcast series uh, via Apple, Spotify, or Google, then absolutely thanks for tuning in as well. Um, today, we are going to be talking around um, how to professionalize your business. Uh, we'll go into more about what that means, but it's, we're going to be talking a lot around um, how to set up processes, TA initiatives, employer branding, interview processes. So lots of tidbits here uh, we're going to talk about. Hopefully everyone, whatever kind of level of business you're, you're working at, can come out this um, listening to this conversation with uh, perhaps some ideas you can implement in your own company. Um, as always, if you have any questions and you're, uh, and you're in the live webinar today with us, then please do pop them on LinkedIn and I will uh, absolutely direct them to our speakers. Um, if you are listening on the podcast and catch up, you can't you can't ask any questions because it's not live. Um, so with that, um, let us go around to intros. So Jasper, do you mind just giving us a quick intro into who you are and, and what you do, please? Yeah, of course. Uh, hi, everybody. So I'm Jasper. I'm, uh, um, I call myself a talent development manager uh, and also head of people. I'm based in Amsterdam in the Netherlands and currently working for uh, Nubus, which is an IT uh, company. Yeah. Thank you, Jasper. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, Rachel, if you wouldn't mind to give us an intro, please. Sure. So I'm head of talent at Forward Partners. We're a VC uh, firm. So we invest kind of pre-seed to series A, early stage investor. And prior to that, my background's very much been an internal head of talent for uh, startups and scale-ups, as well as having a, a, a stint at the Financial Times as well. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Rachel. And last but not least, Dennis, please, over to you. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I've been working in recruitment and talent acquisition for the last 12 years. I'm currently working at GetAgent. We're a prop tech um, comparison site to the estate agency market, essentially. Um, so, yeah, scale up um, currently around 85 people. Fantastic. Well, hopefully everyone feels confident with the, the quality of the advice we're going to get today from our speakers. So thank you all. Um, Jasper, before before we, um, I suppose, go into our, our questioning, I think this actually, this topic, I think, was born from a conversation you and I had a, a couple of months ago, uh, professionalising your business. So do you want to just give us a little bit of an, into an overview? Because I know this is a focal point point of, of your job and what you go into businesses to do. Do you want to just give us a bit of an overview as to what, what you mean by this, professionalise your business? Um, yeah, of course. So in the discussion that we uh, both have, the main point, what, what was interesting for me is one of the questions that we will go into later is uh, um, how you can um, keep the culture and the entrepreneurship that you have as a, a startup and a scale up. But once you start growing uh, around like 30, 40 people, there's an explicit need for a process and, and more structure. And most entrepreneurs see that as uh, something that holds them back in uh, growing their uh, company. So for me, it's always interesting to see how you bring those two worlds uh, uh, together. So on the one hand, professionalizing uh, your uh, business, but on the other hand, keeping the culture, uh, the unique culture that you have. Um, uh, so, you know, that's what I run into with a lot of uh, my uh, assignments, the different companies where I am. And uh, yeah, that's that's something that um, um, keeps entrepreneurs awake at night a lot of times, I think. Yeah. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And, and Jasper, if I stay with you, so if we, if we kick off with, I suppose, how can startups specifically identify and prioritize the most important 
talent acquisition initiatives in the early stages of their growth? Yeah, I guess it's also uh, depending on what you're aiming for, what's your strategy as a business and what are your goals? So, you know, I guess some startups are uh, trying to uh, force their way to a buyout as soon as possible, but others are okay with, you know, keep, keeping it around 30, 40 people and just maintaining that and being a place for people, which is nice to work and just delivering quality. So I guess, um, uh, your uh, acquisition uh, uh, um, strategy should uh, um, uh, uh, mirror the business goals that you have. Gotcha. Absolutely makes sense. Rachel, what, what do you what do you see on this point? So obviously you work with a number of different types of businesses, startups and scale ups. What, what, how do you see how do companies do this? How do they identify and prioritize what they need to implement in the early stages? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one and it varies. So um, I guess what I should have said earlier is my role is very much focused on working with the founders that we invest in and their teams on all things talent. So I'm very much head of talent for the portfolio. Um, and uh, we see a number of different approaches, um, but it's always music to my ears when I see founders thinking about, um, you know, the, the culture side of things, particularly in the very early stages. You know, some of our uh, very early founders, um, when there's just been a, a couple of them, have written a company handbook before they've then gone on to build anything else um, around the business. So I think it's there, there is a piece around kind of understanding where, where you want to take the business. But I think the, the sooner you can think about kind of what is your vision, mission and purpose and how that will then kind of trickle down into your talent and people strategies, the, the more kind of set up for success I think you'll be. And how, how often do you, I mean, because how often do you see a business who has got to maybe even to 25, 30 people and they haven't even thought about any of that? Is that, is that, do you see that much? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it does happen because a lot of the time, I guess, uh, growth is fast and uh, can be quite organic and it's uh, it's difficult to kind of keep up with that. And all of a sudden you're 30 people and um, you need to bring on another 30 and you realise that you've kind of barely onboarded the people you've got. Um, and that's when you start to see kind of retention issues, um, engagement issues as well. Um, you know, and a lot of the time as well, we see, or certainly in my experience and in, in my work, I've seen a lot of companies be very diligent at the beginning, and then a lot of growth happens, and then they forget about it, and then they go for their Series B or whatever, and the next phase of growth comes, and they haven't thought about their candidate brand since pre-seed, and all of a sudden they need to hire 250 people, and they don't have kind of an up-to-date brand or kind of collateral there to really kind of go out there and be a major player in the market. So there's there's lots of different journeys and different shapes and forms companies tend to t tend to go through. Um, but it does feel like it can be something that that can be easily forgotten or can go out of date quite quickly. Um, and I think a key thing for us as talent professionals is not just kind of getting bums on seats, but then ensuring that, you know, the people that are joining companies are there to feel fulfilled, that they can grow, that they can learn. So a big part of my role is not only on kind of finding great talent for our portfolio companies, but also working with our team, our founding teams on how to, to keep and to grow them. Fantastic. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for clarifying all that. And, and Dennis, what, 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 do you, what do you think on this? Anything to add on that in terms of, I suppose, how do companies identify and prioritise in those early stages? 
Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it's it's kind of aligning the recruitment retention sort of challenges to what those business goals are, um, as well as the the kind of problems that we're currently facing. So looking at what is the purpose of your TA function? Are you there to cost save? Do you want to have greater control? Are you there to kind of create an end-to-end exceptional candidate experience? And I think once you understand the, the sort of purpose of, of why you're there, the uh, challenges you're you're there to solve. You can then start working on showing that value, so delivering cost savings. Um, once you've done that, you can then ask for the investment from the business because you've proven that what you've been brought in to do does work and it can work at scale. So, yeah, I think it's just about really understanding what the business needs, what you're there to do, what kind of the short-term wins are versus the longer-term wins, and then really what priority the business and yourselves put on each of those bits and pieces i think like rachel said having those longer term sort of pieces pushed back to the the sort of forefront or oh yeah we'll do that next month that can be a real kind of pitfall because these things can take 12 months to get off the ground so once you're at the point where you want to kick on with these things it's already 12 months in arrears basically yeah absolutely with you thank you for that and, and in terms if we look at um employer branding dennis so from your experience, what strategies work or, or maybe what strategies haven't worked as well? And, and how does that impact talent attraction and retention in, in startups specifically? Yeah, I think um, it's it's hugely important. I think we see now more than ever that the, the best companies out there are the most visible and uh, it's about being in the right places, both from a kind of overall branding perspective, but also just yeah so that you're in the same conversation as your competitors and the kind of companies that you want to be seen with so yeah i'd say um first and foremost define your evp what do you want to stand for what's the current kind of feeling within the team understand what your colleagues love about working within the business understand what they feel are development areas and then go out and build a kind of evp that supports that um and then start shouting about it i think yeah set the foundations every piece of content that your business creates whether that's internal external that is your employer brand so yeah just making sure that your jds your career site your company comms um are all consistent and have a joint approach making sure that wins are celebrated your reviews align with with what the business stands for and if it doesn't that you're sort of speaking with the person who's left those reviews to understand what, what's the reason for that and yeah i think it's just about bringing that all together and doing it in a very kind of deliberate joined up way but really understanding what underpins a successful evp what makes your business a great place and and, and showcasing that Thanks, Maybe I can add, yeah. add one more thing, uh, Paul, to that. I, I guess it mm -hmm. also has to do with uh, who's the business own, owner and who are in the uh, management team, right? If, if you have uh, people who are focused on growth and on product and less on people, then this soon becomes a problem. You know, the, the least thing that they have to think about is that this, it, it is an important thing. And if it's not in their interest or they're not capable of doing so, they have to expand the team that they're uh, currently working with, with somebody who does own this uh, um, uh, subject, people. So I, I, I often run into this problem that an entrepreneur has to focus on product and on growth is not that good or has less interest in, in people uh, he or she has to make sure that he gets on board the right people to uh, to organize this yeah and jasper when you're forging those relationships with those, those types of stakeholders how do you 
I suppose, communicate in language that is going to be perhaps more relevant to, to what they're used to talking? Yeah, well, most of the times, if they call me, they acknowledge that they have the problem of not having the interest in, in, in people, you know, so, you know, they ask me to take over this, uh, this part, but uh, I guess that's already one step that uh, a lot of people or a lot of companies d don't do. And with that, uh, yeah, people don't get the attention that uh, they, uh, they need to get. Yeah. Thanks, Jasper. Rachel, anything to add on that, on the branding piece? Um, yeah, I think there's there's probably just some like fundamentals that's expected nowadays from the market that um, previously haven't been, you know, such as around sustainability policies, corporate social responsibilities. Um, so I think there's there's really high expectations out there from the market in terms of what what a brand needs to portray. But particularly at the early stages, it doesn't have to be anything snazzy, expensive. Um, I think it's about kind of, you know, culture snapshots. Often it's, you know, uh, using your, your phone to take a video and, and do a quick fire question or interview with your CTO that might be hiring lots of engineers. Like there's some really creative ways um, and tools out there that, that can allow you to get a brand out there without having a, a crazy budget to, to do so and, and making it feel very kind of, you know, professional from day one. Yeah, love it. Thanks for that. And, and Rachel, for yourself, how often are you um, approaching people's uh, businesses' interview processes, both in terms of efficiency and making sure they're inclusive, fair, good candidate experience? And, and how, do you, how do you go about that? Do you have kind of a blueprint for, for making that better? Yeah, like interestingly, I'm doing a bit of project work with one of our portfolio companies on, on that at the moment, um, particularly around kind of culture interviews and their engineering interviews. Um, you know, it's got to a point where the interview process has kind of grown organically, you know, uh, a head of engineering or CTOs is, is kind of um, uh, owned and, and shaped it. It's got to the point of scale now. There's a talent team. So I'm now collaborating with that talent team to, to get it to a point where it feels fair, inclusive um, and scalable as well. And that's often one of the challenges with interview processes is, is it scalable? You're often kind of hiring lots of people into a business, but then you struggle to upskill them to be interviewers. So you don't actually have enough interviewers for the candidates that you're trying to hire and bring into the business. And then the process that you've got in place often isn't structured in a way that it has um, training around it and training around what a scorecard should look like, what the what what a scoring framework looks like, what good looks like, what bad looks like, but also what it's outstanding looks like. And a lot of um, the work that I'm doing at the moment is empowering interviewers and to be interviewers on knowing what outstanding is and having the confidence to say that person is brilliant they're not just good um so yeah it's it's around kind of having a set process um understanding who's involved at which stages um having kind of a, a framework which is often based off a competency framework um which you can then put a scoring against understanding what you know if you're scoring one to five what a one is all the way up to five um and then ensuring that you know that process is being facilitated there's a wash up at the end as well so that all decisions are made on data points as opposed to, to gut feeling um yeah you, do you do kind of uh you mentioned a wash up at the end of the process do you do at the end of each stage do you kind of book in briefing call debriefings with high manager stakeholders do you have a process around that each step 
Um, not necessarily at each step. I find it really useful at the end of a process. So I always recommend that to any recruiters I'm working with to to kind of have that in. And I guess you're facilitating pro- the process along the way. So ideally, you're getting the feedback from the first interviewer who's able to kind of then debrief the second interviewer or kind of even if it's not to debrief because they don't want to sway them anyway, at least kind of say, I didn't have time to cover X, Y, Z, or I'm a little bit concerned about ABC. Can you can you pick up on that? And then you can use the wash up at the end of the process to kind of bring all of that together. Gotcha. Thanks, Rachel. Dennis, what, what, what's your kind of strategies around uh, in making, first of all, making sure a recruitment process is inclusive and then it's attracting diverse talent and, and fostering a set culture of belonging? Yeah, uh, it's obviously a hugely important topic at the moment. And and it's something I'd say we as a business are fairly early on um, in our journey. Um, and the way that I think formalizing sort of a process around um, having a sort of DNI and um, sort of strategy to ensure that we're, we're basically kind of putting our roles out in the right places, that they're accessible to multitude of audiences. Um, and then yeah, I think just um, acting fairly and responsibly, um, making sure that we, yeah, we, we sort of bring in a, a level of kind of fairness to to our process. That um, that there is kind of uniformity, like like we just spoke about in terms of how you're scoring people to understand what biases may have crept into our processes whether that's kind of currently historically um and just educating people on on what those are so training development understanding of um yeah you may be leaning towards candidate a because of x y and z have you considered that um the opposite may be true i think one of the the main ones that i see is assuming that somebody coming from a similar industry or similar background is going to perform better in the role than somebody that's coming from a a sort of different space, but just helping the hiring team really kind of come to the realization that actually what you get with candidate A is familiarity and safety, um, and they'll probably pick things up quicker, but will they then have the motivation to go on and build upon that versus a candidate who's got a lot to learn, there's going to be more kind of hunger and drive. So just kind of educating on the importance of that diversity of thought and that diversity of skill set and, and and what that can kind of bring to a business versus same, same, same. Yeah, absolutely with you. And I think it's a really important point. I think um, if your business has got getting diversity hiring right uh, and, and it's big on its agenda, then you need to start cutting out these uh, biases towards the same industry, biases towards education, because it, it, it just works against trying to get that diversity hiring right. So great point. Thanks, Dennis. And, and, and Jasper, um, for you, what, what are some of the best practices for developing an efficient interview process that gives good experience, but also helps you get the right person through the door? Um, yeah, so, so maybe not only telling the, um, the person is applying of how the process looks like, but also why the process is in place. You know, why did we choose to set up this process like it is? Because um, that already uh, shows that you're transparent as a uh, company and also that you take the candidate uh, uh, very uh, seriously. So I think that's one of the um, uh, most important things. And uh, also another thing, I guess, if that you have to try to set up an equal playing field. You know, respect that your candidate takes time and effort in applying and talking to you. 
Um, and if you can create this, you get to see the real person sitting in front of you instead of somebody who's trying to play a role that he or she thinks that will, you know, lead to uh, uh, success. And one of the things that I really like to do is uh, show a vulnerability also, you know, from, from, from our side. So, so that uh, often helps uh, to open up uh, the conversation and get on that uh, uh, equal playing field. Do you mind just expanding on that, that vulnerability bit, just exactly what you mean by that? Yeah, well, you know, uh, often when you're talking to a candidate, it's more like, you know, we as a company are interviewing you and you have to ask uh, or give us the right uh, uh, um, um, answers, you know. But if you uh, try to get on the same uh, uh, level or playing field, like, as I just mentioned, um, you get to see the, the real person. You could give an example of things that might not be going in the right way in your company or a mistake that you made and following up on that uh, example, asking them if they recognize this. And in that way, you get a, a far more open uh, conversation than, you know, just asking questions and trying to get the right answer out of this, uh, this person who's sitting in front of you. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I think the idea of leveling that playing field is a good one. It reminds me, I was speaking to a client recently, and uh, one thing they do is they do reverse interviews. So at least one one stage of the process is with a, a C-level or, or leadership person in the, in the team, and that is purely for the candidate to interview them. It is not not the other way around at all, and it's specifically tailored around that. So I think that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's really, to level the playing field, I think it's a, it's a really useful thing to do when it comes to candidate experience, right? Yep. Um, and Jasper, I suppose just staying with you for uh, for a second. So I know. So how, how can we obviously at the moment we're talking about AI, we're talking about automation. It's, it's constantly a topic. So how can businesses leverage that side of the, the way the world's going in terms of tech, AI, automation to optimize things, make themselves more efficient, but also without compromising that human touch, which is often that secret sauce to getting candidates to join as well. So what, what's your advice around that? Yeah, difficult one, really difficult one. Um, how far do you want to go? You know, um, um, uh, in, in LinkedIn, you have this, uh, um, what's it called? LinkedIn screening questions that people have to uh, um, uh, indicate if they uh, uh, apply to a certain uh, um, uh, qualification. Uh, based upon that, you can already send out an automated email. Um, for me, what I run into right now, it's also a matter of how much effort does uh, a person put into applying for a job. And I guess that could also mirror how much uh, effort and time you put in answering uh, this, uh, this person. For instance, if somebody just uh, sends an email or uh, indicates that he or she is interested without any more uh, information, you could automate the process in asking um, for more information or even saying, hey, sorry, but based on this information, we, we, we cannot work uh, with you, unfortunately. But the more, I guess, the more personal uh, the candidate is uh, uh, being towards you, I think you also have uh, uh, um, uh, something to do there, being personal uh, to that candidate as well. Because it's not only like the uh, recruitment process, it's also you um, uh, showing yourself as a, as a company. And in the, in the end, for everybody, uh, it has to be a, a, a pleasant uh, uh, experience. But I do think, you know, if you put in an effort, we'll put in an effort. If you don't, we'll do less. Yeah, thanks, Jasper. Rachel, what's your thoughts on the use of technology, call it what you like, automation AI, um, whilst, which makes our lives easier, but still 
doesn't take away that personalized touch. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's, it's an area that um, you know Forward is very interested in as well from from an investment perspective. So it's it's big in our world at the moment from from what we're talking about as a company. Um, and I think that that human touch is is still very important. There are loads of benefits to to using tech and, and AI though in terms of making ourselves more efficient. Um, it doesn't need, necessarily need to to replace us, but you know even simple things like create a better version of this outreach email um, or uh, here's uh, find, you know, people that work in this company with this job title. You know, there's there's little things that, that we can ask uh, some of the solutions out there to help us with that does make us a little bit more efficient, turn this into a table, um, turn it into a mail merge with the right code in it, that kind of thing. So for me, I'm very much using it from more of a, an efficiency perspective and, and kind of almost a um a, a copywriter as well yeah i think that, that's yeah it's it's i mean i use chat gpt a lot to tidy up things and make get, get ideas for improvements i think anyone who just uses chat gpt as an example to just if you ask it a question then use exactly what it gives you without giving it any input then that can look a little bit it doesn't look so good and looks very obvious but actually if you put something good into it it can make something good even better rachel question for you so this week uh philosophical question if you like so this week linkedin recruiter um has announced that it's rolling out personalized automatic personalized linkedin recruiter messages so it's gonna it's gone out in the us it's gonna happen in the uk soon whereby it'll actually put together a personalized message for you is that a personalized message if it's been personalized for you that's my question uh should, should it be personalized or well is it i mean is is it if if, if if it's not if you're not personalizing it if a computer is personalizing sorry it's a really shit question of me to ask you it's just it just it just sprung into my head but it, if you take it's, it's doing the personalization for you so is it personalized i don't know i don't know yeah uh Probably to to an extent, right? It's it's just going to do whatever you, you know. Something that you could probably ask ChatGPT to do, but with with it being plugged into into LinkedIn now, but that you always need to go back over and and actually add a little bit more personalization to you because there is thing obviously things that are missed or things that you might know that hasn't been picked up that makes that message even more engaging. So. I mean, it might save a, a few minutes um, in terms of getting you started. And for me, when I'm writing or I'm writing a blog, getting started is often one of the hardest things I find. So to be given maybe a bit of a suggestion of a, a structure to follow can be helpful. Um, but then it's it's always always about then having having you to properly personalise it. <laughs> with, you, with you. Dennis, what's your thoughts? Uh, tech, automation. Uh, AI, how do we use that in a way which still keeps yeah. the human touch? Yeah, I think sort of echoing what both Jasper and, uh, and Rachel have said there, I think it's just about finding the right balance, um, not just the balance, but when to implement as well. Um, obviously, tech can now do a huge part of the process, but it needs to be used as a tool to support your process rather than to run your process. So um, by all means, the, the kind of admin tasks, the um, kind of auto scheduling of interviews and whatever else, I think the first physical conversation you really need to be having in this day and age where the candidate is at TA screening site um, sort of stage, but anything prior to that can be automated. I think where one of the 
kind of pitfalls that we've seen through kind of various testing, especially with some of the more kind of volume hiring that we do is um, if you try to automate too much at the early stage of a process without engaging that candidate first, without showing them that you are a real company with a real culture and that you um, are interested in them as a person and as a candidate rather than just as a number, you'll see huge kind of drop-offs and the automation will have the opposite effect because it will essentially half your talent pool. So it's about choosing the right time to use technology to support what you're doing. Um, and then sort of AI wise, uh, yeah, pretty much exactly the same kind of use cases as everyone else using it as a, as your assistant, if you like, it, it can write uh, content, it can tidy up messages, it can build out sort of lists that then go and help you to sort of formulate policy and, and all of those bits and pieces. But again, I think we're all yet learning how it all works, what the best use cases are, what's too much, what sounds too robotic and all of that sort of stuff. So yeah, just finding that balance with everything. And I think that's what everyone's trying to figure out at the moment. Yeah, absolutely with you. And, and, and Dennis, I'll stay with you. So one thing I often find when I go into businesses who typically are the startup scale-ups is that they don't have, they haven't really pushed employee referrals as a way to get uh, good people into the business. And, and they, they could be so useful, particularly if you're constantly hiring for the same type of person, like a software engineer, for example. Have you, is there anything that you've found that's, that's worked well um, in terms of implementing employee referral schemes and how they can be actually encouraged and managed in a, in a way that gets you good people? Yeah, um, yeah, I think this is this is probably a topic that's gone around the TA community quite a lot in the past, and I think it all boils down to creating a culture and an environment that warrants referrals rather than incentivizing people to refer. So, by all means, create a reward sort of um, structure around it so that when people do refer someone who's great into the business, um, then they they get a bit of, of, of money or whatever else it might be, some some other kind of stuff to benefit or, or anything else. But yeah, I, I feel that they need to be referring people because they want to work with great people because they want to bring other people on this journey with them, that it is a great place to work and that they know that their friend or colleague or whoever else it might be, will be looked after in the company. So yeah, I think it all starts with culture and having the ability to, to yeah, kind of sell that culture and then reward people for doing so. Um, we, we basically, I, I think, look out for kind of two things. A, just ensure that the, the the sort of interview process and the screening and everything that they the candidate goes through is not kind of under any preferential treatment or anything along those lines and they still go through the exact same process and that um, the referrer isn't actively involved within that um, sort of hiring decision. I think those are kind of key bits to, to just avoid um, conflict of interest. And then, and then, yeah, just document it, communicate it, share it, make sure that people are aware of the, the referral scheme. I think that's something that a lot of companies do. We build a great referral platform and then it just sits at a corner of your HRIS and someone may stumble upon it, but it's not communicated or promoted. So just that constant communication, highlighting of any kind of key roles that have, have sort of propped up that, yeah, notoriously difficult to fill. We've got this role, this is the fee on it. It would be great to, to hear your recommendations and just engage your, your kind of workforce that way. Thanks, Dennis. Rachel, anything for yourself working with businesses in the nature that you do is the referral schemes, are they part of the, the blueprint for making things, getting kind of people, new people into engage with the companies? 
Yeah, it's an interesting one because I've had, um, I guess, I've experienced two different schools of thought when it comes to referrals. You know, in um, in a scale-up environment that I took from kind of 60 to 600 people, referrals was a very key, key hiring uh, channel for us. Um, in other organisations that I've been in, there's there's almost a hesitancy because there is a worry that you're kind of hiring people that look and sound and talk and think the same. And that diversity of thought is is really important. So I think if there's if you've got the kind of the you know the what I call like the brilliant basics in place when it comes to kind of hiring, you know, you've got a fair interview process, people are empowered and trained and to to, to kind of uh, you know, make the right decisions based on on facts. Um, then encouraging referrals is 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 a great thing because it opens up a whole new channel. Um, and yeah, like Dennis was saying, you're not kind of favouring anyone that's just because they're from your network or you've worked with them before. It's about kind of positive culture addition, um, uh, not culture fit. If that makes sense. So it's just it's, it, there is a fine line there just to be kind of aware of, I guess, when it comes to the referrals. Yeah, great points. Thanks, Rachel. Um, Jasper, in your experience, how can startups identify and address potential skill gaps in their teams and, and develop a targeted strategy to fill those gaps? What, what, what works for you and what has worked before? Yeah, we, we use tooling for that. So I, I think there are lots of uh, tools uh, out there which can um, bring up the talent uh, uh, that, that, uh, that somebody has. Um, uh, once, once you know uh, from everybody in your team uh, where talent and competences sit, you can easily, I think, draw on a board, okay, we have these roles, these competences and skills are asked for these roles. We have these people uh, with these competences and skills. And then, you know, just draw what, what, what things you are missing. So, yeah, I, th I think that, that that should be quite easy uh, easy to do. And then, then that's just a matter of writing your uh, job profile towards these uh, these gaps and highlight the skill and competencies in the profile, and maybe make it um, a must-have qualification in the in the process, uh, and also uh, for the motivation that they send you for applying for the job. Gotcha. Thanks, Jasper. Dennis, what, what what works with you when you're kind of working with your stakeholders in the business? What what how, how, what's the best way to do it? In in the sense of what's sort of bringing them together and um, yeah, in so, terms of identifying and addressing those skills gaps in the team, and then then putting together a recruitment strategy. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, first and foremost, understand kind of current landscape. Um, where where is the skill set now? Where do you need it to be? What does the current kind of workforce look like? And then and then potentially look at um, upskilling. I think that's probably. Uh, the first place to start is there anyone kind of within the existing team that could fill these boots within the next kind of six to 12 months or, or whatever your timelines look like um and then sort of start having those internal conversations i think simultaneously start building a, a kind of picture of what the external kind of landscape looks like for that specific, uh, particular skill set or sort of demographic of, of, of sort of talent that you're looking for so yeah um see what that supply is um and and make a call on on what you're sort of going to market for. So are you going out to market for the um, kind of complete 
product that has been doing sort of exactly what you want for the last seven years? Or are you going to hire now for someone in um, a year or two time is going to be uh, sort of at the skill set level that you need? Um, so kind of bring all of that into the conversation. Um, and then I think once you have a good picture of what that all looks like and how that all comes together start building out um yeah your kind of um progression frameworks so um you've then got that kind of future proof talent pool that um yes you may lose a couple of people through but you've got kind of that talent model coming through and that that succession model thanks dennis and of course we, we focus quite a bit my questioning i suppose has been focused quite a bit on talent attraction but actually rachel if we go to i suppose what what we need to be doing um to retain top people because we know it costs a lot more to to lose a good person than it is not to find a good person if that makes sense so well, what's what's worked for you with the business you've been working at in terms of retaining top people in what is the competitive market yeah absolutely and and you know the three pillars that my team works to here is find keep and grow talent um so yeah that that keep and grow piece are yeah fundamental if you you know you bring in great talent you want them to to stay and thrive and have a great time um so i think there's there's different things to to look at there different different pillars so you know learning and development you know one of the biggest reasons people move on from a role is either they they don't feel that they're being managed in the best way or they're learning from their manager or kind of are inspired by them or they don't feel like there's progression or learning opportunities for them and progression doesn't always need to be up it can be kind of sideways as well so there's key things around you know just having great managers manager training is really important because a lot of people leave just because they don't like their manager which is a real shame mm. that manager needs needs a bit of help with something so that coaching and, and management piece is very important having the right learning and development opportunities available um and it doesn't have to be kind of uh organized stuff it could just be access to, to various resources or subscriptions so so people can can kind of um yeah uh, enrich their their minds uh, and, and where they want to want to excel. I think engagement and having pulse checks are quite important as well. So understanding where the noise is, is in, the, in the business. Um, engagement surveys, you know, using the likes of Pecon or whatever is is quite good for that. Um, but if you're going to do that, then it's really important to ensure that you're acknowledging the noise once you've heard it and you're putting an action plan together to, to solve those issues. Otherwise, there's a tendency for, for teams just to feel that they're filling out an engagement survey every month or every quarter and nothing's really kind of coming of it. So that whole transparency piece and particularly in the world of startups, you know, it's, it's about taking an existing team on a journey. And often that team that was there at the beginning, there's a very special bond there because you were there at the start. And as a business Business grows you know we're looking at professionalizing there's you know god forbid the word policies comes into it and it all becomes a, a little bit more formal and it doesn't have to feel like you're moving away from your your sense of of, of kind of and, and your mission um it's about kind of evolving and iterating that that vision and mission as as you grow and as you need to become more organized um and just ensuring that you're kind of checking in with people on that journey being transparent about where it's going why certain things need to happen at this time why that might feel a little bit like you know we're we're, we're turning into a big company but actually why it's really important that we have things like that in place for for you know for everyone to feel like they're getting a, a fair go um, um, so yeah, lots lots to think about on on that front. 
Yeah, some great points. Thanks, Rachel. And a, and a really key point around the engagement surveys, if you are going to uh, send them out, and I absolutely encourage every company should be doing that, for God's sake, make sure you acknowledge the responses because um, you know, you can't action everything. You can't, it's impossible. But if people don't feel listened to or feel heard, then they, you're going to lose engagement and it's going to become a detrimental effort rather than a really useful one. Um, Jasper, Jasper what, what, what for you, in terms of the, when you're working with businesses and you're looking at, okay, how can I help this company keep the people they've got? What are the areas as you tend to focus on and what's worked well for you? Yeah, well, um, what Rachel said about management, uh, that's a really fair point. I mean, you have, if you're really talking about your gems of, of your uh, company, I think continuous personal attention is, uh, is key there. And those conversations should be done by people who are genuinely interested in the well-being of this person and in the, the development of uh, this, uh, this person. So, uh, if you have continuous uh, conversations with this person, then you also have to take the responsibility of doing actually something which uh, comes out of these uh, conversation. And that is key. So I really believe, and I know it's not always uh, possible but because of the time you have, but I really uh, think it's key to have this personal uh, attention for somebody if you want to keep them uh, uh, on, uh, on board. Yeah, and th th this is something which, which I see going wrong uh, a lot of times, especially with skills, scale ups and startups. Uh, if you uh, start building like a middle management uh, uh, layer of operational people who step up and the first time, you know, that they are taking on uh, management responsibility, they don't know how to manage or give the right attention in the right way to the people that they start managing. So it's really important that they, you know, um, uh, that you learn them um, um, how to take responsibility in this, in this, and how to uh, have these conversations with the with the people that they're uh, they're managing. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. I think um, you know, coming, I come from a recruitment agency background, and that industry is absolutely. Uh, it's well known for you basically you bill a, you make a lot of money as a biller and then suddenly you're a manager you're like just just start just overnight and uh, you haven't learned the skills you don't know how to handle people or or, or treat people or emphasize with people and uh, yeah I, absolutely i cannot overstate how important leadership and management training is dennis what what for you what, what's get agent doing well um around making sure it's retaining top people yeah, um, I think the, the, the points made there were, were really kind of relevant. Um, I think, yeah, especially around kind of training when you're in a small kind of scale up, you're growing at pace, you, you assume a lot more responsibility than you've necessarily gained the, the kind of experience or done the, done the miles for. So it's about, yeah, making sure people are comfortable um, within their role. I think one of the things we do quite well is um, we bring people along on a mission we we're really transparent in terms of this is what your role is within the organization this is what the outputs are and this is what you're contributing to and um, there's kind of weekly stand-ups in terms of this is where we are as a business this is where we are against where we need to be this is what the market's doing so everyone does feel kind of really bought in and we can maintain that startup culture that that's really kind of driving that performance and i think you get that bit right and then you trust your employees to go out and deliver the work that they know they have to deliver that's half the battle really um yeah some meaningful work in there some stuff that they know is contributing to an overall the growth of the company um and and all of that sort of stuff i think yeah they're they're the kind of key areas my, my area is mainly on the attraction side uh, but i think 
yeah, from what I see and what I know on on the kind of more sort of people side of things, that's that's what fundamentally keeps people happy. Um, and then obviously the opportunity for that progression and um, an advancement in role. And so, sorry, someone just walked into my into my room there. Sorry, go on, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, sorry, just to just to add to that, what Dennis was saying, I think one of the biggest links between attraction and retention is um, messaging and the stories stories that we're telling. But also, you know, just really setting expectations, and particularly for growing businesses, it's ensuring that um, you know there is a realistic expectation of what someone is stepping into in a role and there's not a dream being sold that doesn't exist um and actually with a growing business that can the two can be quite hard to marry um and that's that's part of the journey yeah thanks rachel thank you for that and so we've covered lots of interesting stuff here and i think we've got lots of good advice i just want to kind of put a bow on it and ask each each speaker just to give an example of a, a success story and i suppose actually it could be a failure story because sometimes we learn more from those than the successes don't we but um rachel if i start with yourself could, could you just share a story from um your experience whereby you've gone into a business possibly a startup that's professionalized its ta process which has still preserved its company culture and, and i suppose some of the key lessons you learned along the way that'd be great um, yeah, so I, I, I spent uh, a good chunk of time with a company called And Digital, who are a tech consultancy and, and were very much in startup mode when I joined and kind of grew, grew them at pace uh, and, and also the, the talent acquisition team at pace as well. Um, and I think, you know, I was employed probably number 61 um, and uh, we we took it to, to 600 just before I went on, on mat leave. So there was a lot there around preserving culture, being people first. And that's what we always were, um, you know, learning first as well, uh, whilst, um, yeah, professionalizing the business around us. And I think um, and has quite a unique uh, structure, which allowed them to be very successful in that. So um, teams were almost kind of localized in, into what they called clubs. So there was still, even though we were growing at pace, we were growing communities at pace so people still very felt still very much felt kind of close close to something um which which is nice and then if i think about my time at the ft you know that was a relatively new uh talent acquisition team that i joined um so it had been set up it scaled you know at, at, at quite a big pace um and it was at the point where it needed professionalizing so there was lots going on there was still a lot of buying across the business that needed to happen as, as it was a new capability um there were you know there needs to be the right the right tools the right strategies in place the right processes in place as well and it was about doing that but in a way that um fits in well with the ft culture and and with a culture that that we speak to about our our that we speak to candidates about um essentially as well so yeah i think at the forefront of both of those they've been successful and and having that culture first approach has been really really key fantastic thanks rachel um jasper anything you'd like to share in terms of a uh, an anecdotal experience from for you where you you, you know this has been your I suppose missions, professionalise the TA process, but also keeping that company culture right and the lessons you learn. Yeah, what I can tell is what's what's working really well for us, and that that has been a topic that we've already discussed. But it is uh, um, uh, working with referrals. We uh, work a lot with uh, uh, young students who still are on university uh, on computer science uh, uh, studies. And what I've noticed is that uh, not so much the reward of what they get that uh, is uh, um, having, a, uh, having a successful strategy, but just sitting down uh, uh, with these people talking about, hey, 
we need these kind of people at this moment. Can we do a little brainstorm session together of who in your network could uh, be the right person uh, uh, for this? And um, here in our company, we have like two or three people who are, you know, uh, who really like uh, uh, this role and are really um, also uh, very enthusiastic and uh, energetic about it. And we also tend them to give this official role to them that they are the front runners for our company of hiring uh, the the right people from these uh, universities. So uh, I guess that that's. The, the main lesson uh, for me is trying to find the right people within your company who are enthusiastic about it, because when they're enthusiastic about it, they also have a bigger chance of getting the right people uh, people in. And they also feel, uh, um, uh, how do you say that? Um, uh, well, I can't find the English word right now. That, that's that's, that's uh, really working uh, for, uh, in the right way for us. Yeah, hope that makes sense. Fantastic. Thanks, Jasper. Finally, to you, Dennis. Any, any anecdotal experience you'd like to share? Yeah, I'd probably have to say, uh, and we're by no means finished, but what we're kind of doing at GetAge, and I think, um, yeah, coming in, 3x in the company, um, and, yeah, really giving ourselves a, a bit of um, structure to what we do. I think the key learn for, for me is um, experiment and just test everything, measure everything, understand how we've got to the point where we've built a great culture. It was probably somewhat accidental, um, but understanding what's been great, what needs to change, um, and then going ahead and, and just communicating those changes in, in the right way. Um, I'm, I'm sure we all get the exact same sort of uh, response when we, we bring something new to the table. And it's like, we've always done things this way and it works. It's, it's just about demonstrating that yes, but there's a better way or let's try this way. If it's not better, then we'll revert. But this is how we, how we need to be, um, yeah, sort of, yeah, behaving going forward. So, yeah, I think it's just testing new things, understanding best routes to market, best uh, kind of communication strategies, best processes, and just because everyone's doing something one way doesn't mean it's necessarily going to fit your business. So, just trying to capture the essence of of what really works, and and yeah, building upon that to make it a little bit more of a well-oiled machine. Fantastic. Thanks, Dennis. And, and thank you all, uh, all three of our speakers for today. I think there's lots of useful information here, whether you're working with startups or you're working at a, a larger business. Um, I think we could all take something from it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for locking on next week. We touched on it a little bit today, but next week we're going to be focusing purely on building the perfect interview process, both in, in terms of efficiency, effectiveness, and from an inclusivity point of view. So do tune in for that. Apart from that, have a, have a great week of the sunshine. And, and again, thank you to our three speakers for sharing your expertise. Thank you. You're welcome.